this is the whole thing, you see, you don't want people to know about it, you know. And you do see people and you have a say, well, I'm not feeling too well, you're all nervous at me, there's nothing wrong with you, you're a fine fellow, and all this. You know, you get all this kind of, and you do laugh to yourself and say, God, this bloke only knew, or this person only knew. They never stop to think and study, because you can't expect people to, because other people are, and you do envy people who are not mentally sick. Now, I'd rather have um, cancer, any kind of disease, rather than have what I have. Well, I'll tell you the first thing, the hardest thing about mental illness is to accept it. I've only accepted it now for the last couple of years. This is the thing you've got to fight. If you can learn to accept it, of course you never do, because it's the times when you're sick that you can't accept it. See, it's a terrible feeling when you're sick, you know. You, you just don't know what's wrong with you. You really believe you've got to die. But you don't mind the dying part of it. You'd rather die and get it over with. It's the condition of your mind at the time, you know. It's so sickening. You feel like they're going to sit down and have me dinner and I'll forget all about it. The minute you go to eat your dinner, you know, this terrible depression comes off and you can't eat. You're so sick of yourself. Change that. I'll have a cup of tea instead. You know, and what's wrong with you now? I'm just not feeling up to it, you know. I think a lot of them, unless they have been, in a sense, lucky enough to meet patients with psychiatric disabilities or have them within their own home or um, family setting, um, tend to think of this um, sort of picture of the raving mad, you know? And um, one of the things that students often say after their first period in a psychiatric hospital is, but gosh, they were just like everybody else. Accept him back home is one problem. We have one particular patient, and these people are not inclined to accept him back home, and they should accept him back home. He's quite fit to go home. He's working with me now for five years. What? It's just if you go back, and I can go back anyway, unfortunately, 30 years, you hear him saying, oh, he's in the big house, he's in the mental hospital. This is the idea at home. They don't know any better than to tell their children, well, the local uh, father of a family was in the mental. They shouldn't say they like the children, and then you wouldn't have this stigma coming down through the years. They don't know any better. They want education too at home. Because long ago when you say, oh, he's gone to the mental hospital, that was it, keep away from the whole family, in fact. Never mind the person that just had a, an illness that can be cured. They feel that because you've gone to a mental home that you're insane. You know, they, they don't realise that anybody can have, have a nervous breakdown. It can happen to anybody. And it can happen for, happen for any number of reasons. And people don't um, realise this. They don't realise that... Uh, People who have a, a mental breakdown are quite normal, more normal than possibly than those that don't have a breakdown. Because I really believe the people who have the breakdowns are the people who care about, care about life, care about their families and care about what happens to other people. They're not sure of you, like, you know, I think they, they're waiting for you to do something that is not right all the time, you know what I mean? They're waiting for you to do or say something that is not right to their way of thinking, you know? There's no essential difference necessarily between people who have been categorised as mentally ill and people who are not mentally ill. It simply may be a matter of the difficulties that have been faced and the success or the failure with which they have adapted to those difficulties. People who have not succeeded in adapting become called mentally ill and become treated and then are subsequently branded with a stigma of being different. Now, the first thing I think that the community in general uh, can do in an educational sense is to accept that this is no essential difference and it is simply the result of a maladaptive or a uh, failure to adapt in certain people.
But I never forget the, the sensation I got when I woke in bed in the hospital in the morning to find out. And the thoughts immediately struck me. What are my friends going to think? What are my parents going to think? What are they really going to think? They'll say, God, this man has gone off his rocker. Uh, I was kind of ashamed of this thing, and uh, I didn't want anybody, even to this day, I, I didn't want anybody to know because I felt like they'd say, well, there's a head case. I have often heard it said, oh, he was in such a place, he's a header. Uh, that's the general term used, and uh, they're not, to my point, you know, they're people with problems, but uh, the uh, the attitude of the ordinary pe- person like myself is that, that once you're in those homes, that you're to be mistrusted afterwards, that uh, you're, in other words, you're a head case. One of the difficulties, of course, when a psychiatric patient is discharged from a hospital, uh, having spent quite a number of years in a hospital, uh, they, f- they have great difficulty in integrating in the community. They really are not accepted by the community uh, in many cases, and uh, frequently there is no place for this person uh, to find any enjoyment or any solace except in a public house, and this is undesirable. We label the mentally ill. We put them apart. We fear them. Was it always like this? It's pretty well recognised and accepted that that occurred at the end of the 18th century in Paris, where uh, Pinel, who was uh, who participated significantly in the French Revolution, and he was a physician, and he went into the psychiatric hospital and he literally broke the chains. Um, These people were actually in chains. Yeah, actually in chains. Why? Well. Uh, I don't know, but I would assume that they were considered to be dangerous or uh, possessed by witches or uh, unable to care for themselves. Dangerous, I suppose, is the way people view them. Dangerous and therefore to be put away, sometimes for the rest of their lives. In what sort of a place? The kind of prison Victorian structure of the building with barred windows and having to take exercise in every day, no matter what the weather was at a certain time, um, in concrete courts with tall railings all the way round. Um, an atmosphere very unconducive to uh, anybody getting better from an unfortunate kind of mental breakdown of any kind. Well, the district mental hospital is in Ireland, and this applies I suppose equally to England as well, all were more or less built at the same time in the middle of the last century. And um, their architecture, their structure, their organisation reflected the thinking about psychiatric illness at the time. What was that thinking? Well, the emphasis was largely on custodial care. What does this mean? It meant, in fact, that patients who got disturbed in the the community were... um, brought into the hospital for their own protection. And uh, the emphasis was on protection rather than on uh, treatment, and treatment facilities were very limited at that time. Protection for the patient or for the community? Well, protection for both. How have things changed? Have they? uh, Things have changed a great deal, um, particularly over the last 30 to 40 years. 
The change has largely come about uh, with the development of effective treatments, physical treatments for mental illness. And this has meant that uh, the whole pattern uh, of the usage of these mental hospitals has changed. Initially, um, rather in the last century, when these hospitals were established, patients came into hospital and by and large stayed for many years or indeed stayed for the um, rest of their lives. And these were what is regarded as total institutions. And they were uh, total in the sense that they provided for all the patient's needs. The patients came into the hospital um, to work there. They were uh, fed there. And uh, after a while, they died there. And even after death, they didn't leave the, the mental hospitals. And uh, most of the district mental hospitals uh, have their own graveyards. and. Uh, patients were buried there after perhaps spending a lifetime in the hospital. Relatives weren't interested in knowing about them after that time for a variety of reasons. People stay a shorter time now, six to seven weeks at most. There are few locked doors and there is freedom to come and go. Treatments are more effective. We think of straitjackets and padded cells. Did they exist and what were they like? Uh, a straitjacket is something like a combination set, if you know what that is. <laughs> a vest and pant combined. Um, made out of... Uh, made out of sheeting. Material. More like sheeting than woolen material. Linen, I suppose. But the legs and the arms or sleeves of it are much, much longer than anybody's arms or legs could be. And on the ends of the um, uh, sleeves and legs, there are sometimes tapes as well so that the, the, the patient inside this contraption can quite easily be carried by it or, or tied to something by it. Uh, and in my case, I spent one night tied to a mattress with my arms crossed behind my back, and the following night in the same hospital, I was again put in a straitjacket in order to be carried down to the padded cell. It's a fairly small room with no window, and... It, its walls and ceiling and the door all look rather like a large-scale quilted eiderdown, only it's quilted rubber in this case. So if you see one of these padded cells um, passing through the ward, as anybody might in, in, in the daytime, there's nothing very uh, scandalising about it. There's the absence of a window, but I suppose they have some means of air conditioning or ventilation, because certainly uh, one wasn't conscious of the lack of either. But um, for the patient who is inside a padded cell, things are rather different. One is totally cut off from sight or sound of anybody at all. There's, there's only one small exception to this. There is a, there's a little eyeglass in the um, door, uh, something like a very, very, very small window through which the nurse from time to time can watch what's going on inside. And uh, I think if there's anybody in a padded cell, the, the regulations I think always used to be that a nurse should go and look at the, the patient every so often. The patient inside might be aware of the nurse outside looking in, but I couldn't say that for sure now, it's too many years ago, but that's certainly the only possible contact that there was with, with the outside world. And the result of this, for me anyway, was that 
on both occasions, my imagination very quickly ran riot. Uh, I, I lost all contact with mental hospitals or people in mental hospitals or anything of that sort. I was only conscious of one thing, and that was of being confined. And therefore, my thoughts went to other people I knew about, not other people I knew, but other people I knew about who were suffering from confinement. And it was natural for me at this sort of time, and um, in view of, of my own background, to think about people who were suffering religious persecution in Eastern Europe. And so my mind went to people like Cardinal Stepinets in Yugoslavia and others in his sort of situation. And because of, I suppose, the lack of distraction of any sort whatever in, in this kind of situation, I very quickly identified myself completely with the person I was thinking of in the situation as I saw it. And that was how I spent both those nights, but they were unforgettably gruesome, both of them. Mental illness can take many forms, but the labelling part, what the doctors call diagnosis, is often debated. There are psychotic illnesses, and that's what a layperson might call madness. And by definition, it's just simply loss of contact with and feeling for reality. So that if uh, you or I start to hear voices that are not there, or if we start to believe that a television program is referring directly to us, uh, or that a newspaper article is written about us somehow or other, or that in a subtle way, in between the lines, there is a message being directed at us, and, and this, in fact, is not occurring, uh, well, then that's loss of contact with our reality, and that's uh, psychotic illness, in a way. And what are the main sort of labels for psychotic illnesses? Well, the main ones are schizophrenia and manic depression. Uh, the schizophrenic illness oftentimes is follows the form that I was uh, mentioning there. The manic depression is uh, simply exaggerated and persisting mood swings. All of us can be very, very happy uh, for an afternoon or an evening, and it doesn't mean that we're uh, behaving in a manic way. But if we stay rather persistently uh, happy and Feelings, feeling superior and capable of, you know, tackling any task. If we, for instance, uh, go out and spend a lot of money that we don't have, if we go to the races and gamble with money that we don't have, all on this uh, cloud of optimism, that's, and that persists for a while, that's probably illness. And similarly, if we head in the other direction and stay depressed, for long periods and you sad. You mean really, really depressed? Oh, yeah. I mean miserable, miserable, lonely, isolated, perhaps feeling that life isn't worthwhile. And if that sticks, if, if, if it glues, that's uh, probably illness as well. Because a depressed mood is not illness. And if I'm living uh, in rather uncomfortable surroundings, uh, perhaps in one room with... Uh, a wife and ten children, 
and I'm uh, depressed from day to day. It's doubtful if that could be called illness because it's understandable response to harsh environmental So then these factors. two main categories are uh, this, what you called the psychotic illnesses. Yeah. Then I, there is another... Yeah. There's another main category, isn't there? Yeah. Two more. Yeah. They, um, after a psychotic illness comes neurotic illness, which is understandable to all of us because we have experienced glimpses of it, at least. Uh, and uh, in this group, there exist those who are excessively anxious, uh, anxiety, psychoneurosis. And that's really where one feels threatened and uh, afraid all of the time. There are, of course, many other forms of neurosis which we have all experienced to some degree, but they are different in intensity to what the psychiatric patient experiences. This intensity often affects their behaviour. We see the behaviour, but we often don't understand the feeling behind it. This causes them to feel even more alone. Take Elizabeth, who is a manic depressive. When I first woke up, and for some time afterwards, I was quite certain that I was literally in hell. And it took me a long time to overcome this. I know from what I've been told by people who came to see me there, my headmistress especially, that I was very withdrawn for many months, uh, uh, the first months I spent there, I suppose, and I'm sure this must have been because, um, owing to this very firmly rooted belief, conviction that I, I had that I was in hell, there seemed no point in doing or saying anything about it. This was a situation that couldn't be changed as far as I was concerned for all eternity. All I could do was submit to it. That is an example of a uh, a hallucination or delusion which had a real grip on me for a very long time. For Elizabeth, mental illness has been a part of her life now for over 20 years. Has she learned to live with it? I would like to be able to say that because I, 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 when I think of the number of times that I've been mentally ill, it would, it, it would seem a logical thing that one should... Um, be able to say this, but I don't think so. I, I think every time I have even a fairly mild uh, outbreak of uh, elation, depression, whatever it may be, uh, I, I tend to hope it'll be the last. And uh, I do see it as having so many disadvantages that I don't want it to be part of my life. What sort of disadvantages do you find it has? Well, How has it affected your life, if you like to put it that way? Uh, I, I, I suppose that it's affected my, my, my life in many different ways, really. Um, but I, I think the most upsetting way in which it's, it's, it's affected it has been that it's sometimes uh, damaged or even destroyed personal relationships with people I really cared about because of... Um, my behaviour during one of these uh, spells, um, something has changed which couldn't be changed back again. Anne is the mother of three young children. About four years ago, she spent some weeks in a psychiatric hospital and since then has had two relapses. I asked her how it felt. Well, I felt um, completely lost in myself and 
really not knowing where to turn to. You know, nobody to turn to in a sense. Nobody understood the problem you had. And even if they did, there wasn't anything they could do about it really, other than the doctor giving you pills or electric treatment or something, you know. Anne has learned to live with it by taking each day as it comes and not analysing things too much. Also, she has an understanding husband who is a great support to her. As well as that, she attends an outpatient clinic. It's nine years ago since Kevin first became mentally ill. He has eight children and is a house painter, but since his illness he finds it impossible to hold down a job for any length of time. And yet... Uh, I'll tell you about disability analysis. That's another... That's a thing now. I'll tell you, it's horrible type of money. I hate it. I hate even... I hate being unemployed. I'm so used to work, you know, because when I did work and um, I put me time in the hard way, I, I learned all I had to learn about it. I, didn't, I never, had no shortcuts, you know, I learned it the hard way. And I enjoy my work immensely. I, I really enjoy working. But the disability, I hate it. It's horrible money, you know. Something about it, there's a stigma attached to it, you know. Um, something, you know, it's... It's, it's not just the same as money you've earned, you know, that way. The shilling you have the best shilling, of course, we all know that. But it just doesn't seem to work out for me. It's something about it, you know. I think you get it with a bad heart, that's what it is, you know. You say, well, the fellow like I'm sick, well, it's genuine that people say, oh, wait, this, this man is entitled to this, and that's fair enough. But what gets me about it is this, that, no, I only mean it in this respect, that I can't understand if a man is earning, say, £20 a week. It takes that much to run his family, you know. I don't see why when the time he really needs the money, when he's really sick, he only gets half that amount. This is the thing, you see, this is what really hurts you altogether, because you know it's just sick and it's going to be harder now it's just sick. And it's, you're going to get less money, so how the hell can you get better, you know? These people and their problems may seem far removed from us, but are they? Take these facts. One out of every three persons consulting his family doctor has a psychiatric aspect to his illness. But one person in 12, at some stage of life, will need inpatient psychiatric care. 45% of hospital beds are occupied by psychiatric patients, and Ireland has the highest number of people in mental hospitals per head of the population in the world, 7.3 per thousand people. The decision to go to hospital for treatment is not an easy one. How much help can a social worker give a family here? I think that... Sometimes you have to wait until the family themselves realise because of the difficulties created in the home that they need outside help. And you sometimes have to be patient and see a patient perhaps deteriorating at home in order to bring home to the family, you know, you really can't cope with this. This person badly needs to be in hospital for very specialist help. But I think you can help, you can make this clearer to them by um, pointing out that it will not be a forever type of help. Um, so often mental hospitalisation before meant that the patient went away for very long spells and maybe forever. And when you make an analogy with other forms of illness and say, for instance, you know, if this patient had active tuberculosis, you would certainly um, persuade them to come into a, a sanatorium and be treated until they were well enough to come home again. They might have to stay on treatment for quite some time after that, but they would need to be in hospital for a while. This kind of analogy can be helpful. And when uh, the the, the community know the hospital to which the patient is going. It is also easier if you can bring them to the hospital and show them uh, the sort of place it is and explain that they can visit regularly and that the patient will be allowed to come home for weekends within a short time of being admitted probably 
and that the hospital will re- will remain in touch with them and tell them what's going on, I think it's easier. I think more often we have a problem where the patient has been in hospital and the family feel because they had difficulty beforehand, they won't be able to manage the patient afterwards. Well, that's the next thing I was going to come to. What sort of assistance, how can you help them in receiving the patient back home and in learning to cope? Yeah, I think you can help them from the very start, from the time the patient has become ill, by keeping in touch with them and um, making them aware of the patient's progress and the sort of expectations they should have when the patient comes out. Um, Usually, the relatives will be seen probably by the psychiatrist treating the patient, perhaps by a social worker or a community nurse while the patient is in hospital. And on discharge, if you can reassure them that in certainly in Dublin and probably throughout the country that a community nurse will visit the patient at home, will bring their medication and will ensure that um, uh, help is available if the family feel they need this. The patient will also attend outpatient clinics and uh, that at any time they can contact a member of the hospital staff and help is available. I think this makes an awful difference. We can also help, of course, both the, both the um, social work staff and the community nurses in helping patients to get their jobs back or to be retrained, perhaps, or um, be placed in more suitable employment than previously, sometimes helping with accommodation, with all the other things that can um, uh, affect their mental health. Other people very likely to come into contact with mental illness are the teacher and the general practitioner. I feel at times that perhaps the, the schools aren't sufficiently conscious of difficulties in the families of children who are disturbed in school where um, perhaps the psychiatric service could um, be brought in to help with um, a very sick parent perhaps um, an alcoholic father um, whose behaviour is producing disturbance in the child and of course this would be uh, in part a preventive service because presumably you would be helping the children um, to, well you would be ensuring that the children aren't going to become so disturbed as to need psychiatric help themselves later on that's one of the um, so one of the things which a, a good GP should be doing is prying underneath the presenting symptoms of any illness. You get quite a few people who come as in general term as hypo, hypochondriacs, but in fact they're not. They're coming. They're using um, some trivial ailment as an opening gambit and hoping that you will spot that there's something deeper to get onto. And uh, this is something that we, that we as GPs shouldn't miss. There's the, there's the other patient who comes in and says, I don't know why I'm here, doctor, but I thought I'd come and talk to you. This is certainly one that must be looked after and um, sorted out properly. You must take your time. There's, the whole trouble with mental illness in GP is that you often haven't sufficient time to do a full and proper examination and but you must make time I say so that's the way I feel about it. Most people think of treatment for mental illness in the form either of drugs or shock treatment ECT. I know the electric treatment is very good at helping you back quickly on your feet it does help you know it it, um, when you come out of it, it it's a dreadful feeling in the sense like when you're going off like you know but I know it to be very good and I, at least in my case it was I found it very good you though I don't like it yeah were you frightened of it to begin with I mean was it explained to you oh yes the nurse explained you know that I thought you put down the end of the bed you know and there's this gadget more or less like a tape recorder you know and 
this thing is put on you, you get a needle and you don't know anything else. Uh, you're only out for a few moments, but you feel as if you're, you've been away somewhere, you know? In the best uh, hospitals where it's given, an explanation is given of, of what is being done. That, I think, is very important. Uh, one of the ways that mental patients like myself suffer most is by having things done to them which are not explained to them. Another form of treatment is psychotherapy, where the patient talks out his problems to someone trained to listen. However, the shortage of qualified people prevents this from being a widely used form of treatment. More and more common, though, is group psychotherapy, where about nine patients talk out their problems in groups. One place where this technique is used regularly is in a recently opened day centre for psychiatric patients in Dublin. Twenty-five patients go there every day from 9.30 to 5 o'clock. It is a parish community centre which has been leased to the hospital and is staffed by them. Everybody works as a team and no one wears a uniform. A number of patients have to go back to hospital at night, although they would progress more quickly if there were a hostel they could return to. Maeve is one of them, and for her, this new informal type of treatment has brought new hope. Well, it has helped me in lots of ways, but primarily I think the whole setup, which is so different from that of the hospital atmosphere, has helped me tremendously. I myself have spent almost six years in the hospital, and I felt I was doomed forevermore and was beginning to think I would have to get resigned to that type of life, although I resented it very much at the back. But since I've been attending St. Cables, I've, I certainly feel a different person. I feel well on the road and hope to feel well on the road to recovery and hope that um, I will one day be able to resume a, a normal life, which I haven't known for many years now. Why do you think it's been able to help you in this way? Is it the sort of different, the informal contact with people? Yes, the, the setup as a whole, the, it is completely different from the aspect of nursing and, you know, the type of treatment, the whole thing has meant an awful lot to me. I, apparently it's the treatment I must have been waiting for because I've come on so well since I've been there under this. What sort of differences do you notice in yourself since you've gone there? Well, I, I um, well, I've great hope now. I think that's the main thing, and I'm beginning to realise that it can be done that I can be rehabilitated in spite of, of thinking at one stage that I was beyond redemption, as it were. Maeve says she will be terrified to admit to a prospective employer that she has been in a psychiatric hospital. I asked a psychiatric social worker what sort of attitudes she found amongst employers. This varies very much and depends on the enlightenment of employers. I'd say, generally speaking, there are misconceptions about mental illness and employers seem to expect dangerous sort of behaviour as against families who know the patient and when you um, suggest that somebody might be employed very often the reaction you get is well you know are they dangerous and so the, you know that this is of course quite wrong um, what we have to explain is there's a possibility that they may not be quite so reliable they may um, 
not have the same drive and motivation that uh, somebody who's quite well will have. But uh, once a patient has had a job and has worked successfully, I think if the hospital or the, whoever is treating the patient makes contact immediately with the employer and explains that they're able but will be going back to work, this makes it easier. If, on the other hand, a job has been left, the employers haven't been um, given any explanation as to why the patient has disappeared, it's unlikely that they'll be taken back. On the whole, we find that employers are cooperative, but of course, with high unemployment anyway, it's difficult if you have an unreliable employee to keep a place open for them when somebody who, is, who hasn't got the complication of mental illness is available for the job. But I think we have a function here again, as far as possible, to um, offer a backup service to factories and, and employing concerns uh, where they have, especially where they have more than one patient who has been in a mental hospital. Work, though, is not that easy to come by, especially in country areas. To combat this, one placement officer started a contract scheme from the hospital he was attached to. What does he think about employers? I'm often very annoyed, and I use the word annoyed purposely, when I go to an employer and I tell him about a particular uh, person I have in mind for employment, and he, he classifies him straight away without listening to what I have to say about this man. He has a notion about him. I think if I was to ask for one change, as you suggest, I'd like that um, the public in general give these people a chance. They're not all, uh, practically none of them that I know of, and I'm working with them for a good many years now. Very few of them um, are, are, are aggressive. Very few of them are, uh, have any dangerous traits or anything like this. And I'd like the employers in particular to, to give them a chance. Many of us know the district mental hospital from the outside, but what goes on inside? I visited one large hospital in the country where there are over 900 patients and about 400 staff. The wards in this hospital are cheerful and painted in bright colours. Jim is a nurse and in charge of a ward of long-stay patients, but only about a quarter of them were there when I went in, as it was the middle of the afternoon. So most of them are long-stay patients. There's a few recent, recent admissions but the majority of them are long-stay patients. Yes. And they're, they're undergoing, mostly undergoing, of course, rehabilitation. There's a lot of them working outside and, and outside jobs and the petrol pumps and things like that, you know. Any place we can get work outside in the community for them. So they just they, come back to the hospital at night? They come, well, they come back. Some of them come back as, as for their lunch, do you see, and others come back at night. But they're out for the best part of the day anyway. Did you know the hospital in the old days? Oh, I certainly did, it? yes, yeah. What sort of a difference is there? Oh, sure, the difference is terrible. There's a big difference, big difference, because uh, the doors are all open, as you can see, wide open. Those doors were all locked. You can see that's a particularly heavy door down there, it was just uh, to prevent people breaking out here if you go back far enough. But uh, there's a lot more freedom for patients. Do you know what type of dress patients have? As you can see, the wards are all decorated and new furniture in them. And long ago, they would have worn all dark colours on the walls, you know, a gloomy appearance. and It wasn't most depressing. You couldn't expect people to get well in the kind of surroundings we had. But now, you can see, it's bright and cheerful and every effort is made to make it as home-like as possible. Peter is a community psychiatric nurse and much of his work involves visiting patients at home. I asked him what sort of problems they were up against when leaving hospital. 
Well, housing is definitely one of them, you know, and probably the biggest one. Or living then in isolation, being a lot of people living in isolation of the country, and uh, that is a problem too. Away from everyone and live in seclusion and not coming out. And, yeah. How about the attitudes of neighbours? Uh, neighbours, well, it varies there again. You know, some of neighbours uh, take them all right and understand them, really, you know. But uh, some, then you get some that should be afraid of them. You remember the old days in a psychiatric hospital when the nurses were really more custodians than nursing, than, than nurses. Uh, you know, how do you find the change? Is there a big change? Oh, there is a great change entirely. Uh, it's really wonderful now compared to those days, like with the locked doors and that, you know. It's, yeah, it's a pleasure to be walking in those places, really, compared to those times, you know. It's so free and easy. And, Everyone is going about their business and doing their work on no locked door. The way in which mental hospitals are used is changing fast, and the numbers being admitted are falling. Six to seven weeks is now the average length of stay, and only about 5% of patients being admitted now will stay more than two years. After a stay of more than two years, a patient is termed chronic, and at present, chronic patients in this hospital amount to 740 of the hospital's population. These patients pose special problems. 50% are over 60 and often have no relatives left. 14% of them suffer some degree of mental handicap. Most of them will need care and attention for the rest of their lives. It appears that the people in the community most liable to become mentally ill are middle-aged single men in a low-income group. I asked one of the hospital doctors if patients in the country are still reluctant to go to a psychiatrist. I think this is probably true, yes. I think this is, to a certain extent, shown in the, the spectrum of illness that we see in this area. In urban areas, one would tend to find a much more neurotic illness, personality disorder, uh, psychiatric upsets following on social problems and this sort of thing. In the country area, uh, this is not yet thoroughly accepted as a reason for coming along to see your psychiatrist or to see your doctor. And one tends, uh, in this area, to see a lot of uh, more acutely disturbed psychotic type illness. Well, in your opinion, would it be better if people went along earlier with what they suspect may be mental illness? Yes, indeed. The earlier one comes along with uh, psychiatric illness, the, the better the um, chances for complete cure. John has been in hospital for 35 years and is now 70. He is a schizophrenic and will never be able to return to life outside the hospital. He both sees and hears a talking machine in the sky, which sends out invisible waves. There was a talking machine in the sky, you know, and still there. Still there. And, and after a few minutes, it said, no, no, we're on John Joseph's person. Well, does this talking machine talk to you? It's, still? Talking, to, it's talking to me, too, and these episodes. Since then. What sort of things does it say? No, it, it, it talks about his own affairs, about itself, what it will do with us, and all, and make, out, and make everyone do everything. You know, and all, yeah. Well, does it worry you? 
It may, there may be a staff on it, you know, I don't know. Does it worry you? Sometimes. Uh, sometimes it gets wicked. Can you ever forget about it? Hmm? Is it always there, or can you ever forget about it? It was always there. It was there since 1935, anyway. Phil was sewing buttons on shirts when I met him. He is elderly and never married. I asked him if any of his family were left. One sister, and she's here. A patient as well as myself. How long is she here? She's here the same length of time as I am myself, five, five years. Five years. And um, <coughs> have you any relatives? Have you cousins or anything? I have cousins, yes, I have. Do they come and see you? They come and see me regularly. You were telling me that um, you had uh, a farm down the country. So I have. How big is it? About 28 acres. And were you working on it before I you came in? I was working on it all my life. Is there a house there too? There was a good slated house in it. Is it still there? It's still there. But it's empty? It's empty. Well... When you were in the hospital before, what sort of things made you come in? I drink. I started to... Me, me brothers went to the town, were living comfortably, and he broke his hip. And my sister was in here, and I was living me alone, and it began to take an odd half, and, and they, they took too much. So there's nobody at home now when the house is locked up. Do you think he'll ever go back to it? I do. I expect to get back to him. Well, did you make a living off the farm completely? Yes. You managed to live off Managed there? to live on the farm. You never had to go and look for other sort of work? I was in England a few times. What were you doing there? I was in a factory. How did you like that? I liked it well. But my sister was at home and living alone and I wasn't content at taking a home. On the whole, though, it's, it's not a bad life in here, is it? It's not a bad life in here. But you're never contented in it. Why do you think that is? Thinking of getting home and being at home and so on. What are the special difficulties of a mental hospital in the country? Well, I think one of the the big difficulties is the uh, scattered population that a hospital in the country has to cater for a very large area, thinly populated. And for this reason, it is difficult for us to make contact with the patients in the community. Also, uh, difficulties arise from the employment of patients who have been... These are the long-term patients who have been rehabilitated in the psychiatric hospital. Uh, we have some difficulties with regard to the employment of these patients and also with regard to, when we do get them employed, with regard to their accommodation. Uh, industry, uh, in some areas, some rural areas... Uh, is not very great, and uh, we have difficulty in, in finding employment for, for direct employment for patients. Prevention, of course, is always better than cure. How early should one start? I think we must start as early as possible, and I'm thinking in terms of um, education of people, preferably before they can before they get married. And I'm not talking about compulsory pre-marriage courses, which are ridiculous, um, uh, which is a ridiculous idea. Uh, marriage courses are not ridiculous, of course not. But I'm thinking in terms of home economics for secondary school girls, uh, the teaching of 
uh, how to handle babies, infants, young children. These are things that can be taught to young people, which they find enormously interesting, as, has, as experience has shown. And the uh, teaching, I think, to uh, young people growing up of the, the value of understanding themselves and other people and relating to their emotions and the emotions of other people and beginning to be aware of the sensitivities of others. And I'm thinking here now of this whole program of sensitivity training that has become so very popular in the States and which has developed some excesses, I, I agree, but which does at least help people to become aware of other people's feelings. And if you can't understand your own feelings, how much more likely are you, able, are you likely to understand your children's feelings and needs and and how to cope with them. Since our psychiatric services are in fact very thin on the ground, where can we start from now? It would probably be of value if we began in schools by trying to give people a greater awareness of what public health was about and in this sense that it wasn't simply a matter of, of hygiene and germs and so forth, but that also it was a matter of building uh, stable social systems which were not going to create undue emotional pressures on the people living within them. Now, of course, it's much harder to speak in precise terms and to measure this kind of objective than it is to talk in terms of a specific drug or a specific germ or something of that nature. But um, essentially, I think, in the immediate uh, future, what we have to do is simply have a programme whereby people like teachers, priests, uh, family doctors, uh, politicians, local um, and national and so forth, I'm just tossing these people out now as they come to mind, um, are brought into contact with the professionals who are working in these kind of fields and they themselves then, by discussing these problems, develop an understanding of them and an ability to do something about them. Do something about them. Our psychiatric services will only be as good as we really want them to be. At the moment, even the professionals agree that they are disgraceful. We are all guilty. Are we sane? On this particular day, I think you'd want to understand the what mental hospitals were like perhaps ten years ago. You had a long corridor with a day room, and of a Sunday afternoon especially, there mightn't be a lot to do from, say, after dinner hour till four o'clock in the evening. You'd have a, two hours of a break. And uh, in those days, as I say, there wasn't much to do, and both patients and nurses might be trying to fill in the time, either reading the papers or what have you. But the, apparently there was this particular young nurse, a chap of uh, 21 or thereabouts, and uh, he was uh, trying to pass the time away by um, pulling, fishing for a seagull out the window. There was a crack in one of the small panes and he had a fishing line with a hook and some bread attached. And uh, he had this out through the crack in the window and the seagulls were lighting down and he, he was having mixed success. But eventually, anyway, he caught one. And when he tried to get it in the window, of course, he had to break the rest of the glass to get it in. And uh, there was a patient not too far away who was watching him uh, from the corner of his eye. But of course, he tolerated this up to the point where he broke the window. Once he brought the window, he said, look at that now, breaking the red pair's window. I'll tell the doctor when he comes in the rounds. So, um, of course, when the doctor did come in the rounds, he ups and tells the doctor, he said, 
doctor, such and such nurse, um, has broken the ratepayer's window. And uh, of course the doctor had to take some action on this. And uh, he turned to the supervisor and he said, have you a, a nurse here by that name? Oh, I have, said the supervisor. Well, I've had a complaint from this patient that he's just broken a window. So uh, he was about to turn to reprimand the nurse when the patient uh, added a little further to the story. And doctor, he said, when he had the window broken, he put his hand out and, and pulled in a seagull. So the doctor just turned to him and he said, ah, you're not feeling too well today. Go to bed. Go to bed. You're not feeling too well. <laughs>